Well, today's teaching is the results of a life or lives given over to idolatry. It is the response of God, it is the recording by God of what happens when people turn their back on God. I have successfully evaded teaching this text my whole ministry life until now. And if you read in advance this morning, you will know why I have always found other things to teach about than this particular text. Some of you haven't read this, so you didn't really understand what I'm talking about, but you will soon have your mouth agape and your eyes wide open, bugging out of your head and not believing what you are reading. Since from the time we are very, very small, we always, we, we believe that if we could actually control our lives, we would have great freedom. Those of you who have raised children or know little children or all of that, you know that's exactly what they want. They want to do things their way. They want to raise themselves. And in fact, it comes to a, a, a real boil in our teenage years when even all, all these years as we come along, we realize if I could just do what I want to do, if I could just get out of my house, if I could just get away from my parents, I would be free and life would be so amazingly wonderful. And we don't, regular, we don't really lose that thinking. It, it tempers a little bit and it morphs and it changes. But, but quite honestly, we believe, well, you know, if I could just have enough money, then I could be free. If I could... If I could be the boss for once, then, then, then I could really be free. And then we arrive at some of those places and we realize that having a great deal of money hasn't set us free. It just means we have a lot of things to manage and we try hard to keep it to ourselves or keep it or make sure it doesn't go away. And so it starts to dominate us, or we find out when we're in charge, we think, well, I could really be free if I'm in charge, but, but we find out that, that when we're in charge of something, we're the least free of anybody else. So personal control never leads to freedom. It actually leads to just the opposite. It leads to enslavement. In um, our study guides... Tim Keller quotes from Rebecca Pippert's book, Out of the Salt Shaker and Into the World, where she says, whatever controls us is our Lord. Notice the small l. We are controlled by the Lord of our life. He also goes on to quote C.S. Lewis from his writings called Equality, where he writes, for our spiritual nature, like bodily nature, will be served, deny it food, and it will gobble poison. And uh, there is this great quest in us to be able to do whatever we want to do. Uh, I happened to randomly uh, listen to uh, an Andy Stanley sermon. Um, actually, he preaches every night on TV on NBC at 1 o'clock in the morning. For any of those who are like, of you who are like me who are up late on uh, Saturday nights. Um, and he, uh, if I don't have a sermon, I just check in with Andy Stanley and, at 1 o'clock in the morning. And, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Some of you will believe I actually do that, but anyway. And, and I caught him saying, I caught him uh, using this phrase, 
um, people are, are, are bent toward this. I want to do whatever I want with whoever I want, whenever I want. And that is sort of the epitome description of our culture. Billy Graham, interviewed not too long ago, of 96 years of age, said the number one problem in our culture is this. People want to do as they please. Well, it couldn't be more comparable to the book of Judges. In fact, we have discovered in the book of Judges that everybody wanted to do or did what was right in their own eyes. And as we introduce the text this morning, there's actually three chapters, chapter 19, chapter 20, and chapter 21. It begins this way, in those days, the people had no king. In those days, Israel had no king. That is, they had no official guy who had a crown on top of his head and called himself the king. But I want to submit to you that everyone has a king. Everyone has a king. In the absence of choosing the right king, you settle for any king. And little kings take away your freedom. And I would suggest to you that what we have learned over these last number of weeks is that they settled, Israel settled for whatever seems right in your own eyes, king. That was their king. Whatever seems right in your own eyes ruled their lives. And as we embark upon the journey this morning, we get to the place where we see the fruit of what that looks like in people's lives. So if you have your Bibles, would you please turn with me to Judges chapter 19. And let's see how that is working out for them, doing whatever seems right in your own eyes. Judges chapter 19. I'm going to read 19. I'm going to make commentary on 20 and 21 uh, later on. Judges 19 verse 1. In those days, Israel had no king. Now a Levite, now Levites are to be the, uh, the keepers of theology. They were the ones who were to be to hold out the standard of, of God in front of the people. And uh, so we expect, we should expect good things from them. But there was this Levite who lived in a remote area in the hill country of Ephraim, took a concubine from Bethlehem in Judah. But she was unfaithful to him. She left him and went back to her father's house in Bethlehem, Judah. After she had been there four months, her husband went to her to persuade her to return. He had with him his servant and two donkeys. She took him into her father's house and when her father saw him, he gladly welcomed him. His father-in-law, the girl's father, prevailed upon him to stay so he remained with him three days eating and drinking and sleeping there. I, I need to pause for a second um, because you're gonna see some language here that's probably, probably uncomfortable to you and, and uh, number one, that uh, he had a concubine. And... Um, the, the, um, the sad state of affairs in Israel throughout this time and on throughout a, a little further time was the, uh, they took multiple women into their homes and uh, there was various status given to them. Uh, the wife would be the wife and then there'd be a concubine or several concubines and, and uh, the whole notion or the whole idea of polygamy among God's people uh, every time it's presented in the scriptures, it's presented in an unfavorable way. The results, the consequences of it are always unfavorable. God's design is not 
multiple, for men to have multiple wives. In fact, the original design was one man for one woman for life. That's the original design. That's the design that, that the, the New Testament church, that's the design that Christ uh, presented. And, uh, but you're going to find in this text that Israel had wandered away and had continued to wander away. And you say, yeah, wait a minute, but didn't David have multiple wives and he was the apple of God's eye? Yes, he did. But every time there are multiple wives, you can, you can mark it down. It is always presented unfavorably and with great consequences. And so that's why using the language here of, of, of this concubine having a husband he was he would not be considered a husband in our days and in fact a concubine in our day would be considered a mistress all right this is simply a sex slave that's all she is and so why did the father-in-law welcome him with open arms because his daughter had violated her relationship with this man as as obnoxious as the relationship was and rightfully because she had been unfaithful to him or left him he could have had her executed and so the father-in-law here is kind of doing some schmooze work with the Levite so that he won't kill his daughter that's all that's all I think I see here so um, let's start again five on the fourth day they got up early and he prepared to leave but the girl's father said to his son-in-law refresh yourself with something to eat then you can go So the two of them sat down to eat and drink together. Afterward, the girl's father said, please stay tonight and enjoy yourself. And when the man got up to go, his father-in-law persuaded him, so he stayed there that night. On the morning of the fifth day, when he rose to go, the girl's father said, refresh yourself. Wait till afternoon. So the two of them ate together. Then when the man with his concubine and his servant got up to leave, his father-in-law, the girl's father, said, now look, it's almost evening. Spend the night here. The day is nearly over. Stay and enjoy yourself. Early tomorrow morning, you can get up and be on your way home. But unwilling to stay another night, the man left and went toward Jebus, that is Jerusalem, with his two saddled donkeys and his concubine. When they were near Jebus and the day was almost gone, the servant said to his master, come, let's stop at this city of the Jebusites and spend the night. His master replied, no, we won't go into an alien city whose people are not Israelites. We will go on to Gibeah, he added. We will go on to Gibeah. He added, come, let's try to reach Gibeah or Ramah and spend the night in one of those places. So they went on. And the sun set as they neared Gibeah in Benjamin. There they stopped to spend the night. They went and sat in the city square, but no one took them into his home for the night. That would be the normal practice when you were a visitor going into a town. You would go to the city square. You would sit there. That's where all the elders met. That's where all people, all the commerce took place and all of that. And if there was anybody there, a visitor who was there, then it was the expectation of the community to take that, those people into your home. That was just given hospitality, the expectation of hospitality. It is foreboding uh, that they didn't get taken in. That evening... An old man from the hill country of Ephraim, who was living in Gibeah, the men of the place were Benjamites, came in from his work in the fields. And when he looked and saw the traveler in the city square, the old man asked, where are you going? Where did you come from? He answered, we are on our way from Bethlehem in Judah to a remote area in the hill country of Ephraim where I live. I have been to Bethlehem in Judah, and now I'm going to the house of the Lord. No one has taken me into his house. We have both straw and fodder for our donkeys and bread and wine for ourselves, your servants, me, your maidservant, and the young man with us. We don't need anything. 
You are welcome at my house, the old man said. Let me supply whatever you need, only don't spend the night in the square. So he took him into his house and fed his his donkeys. After they had washed their feet, they had something to eat and drink. While they were enjoying themselves, some of the wicked men of the city surrounded the house, pounding on the door. They shouted to the old man who owned the house, bring out the man who came to your house so we can have sex with him. The owner of the house went outside and said to them, no, my friends, don't be so vile. Since this man is my guest, don't do this disgraceful thing. Look, here is my virgin daughter and his concubine. I'll bring them out to you now, and you can use them and do to them whatever you wish. But to this man, don't do such a disgraceful thing. But the men would not listen to him. So the man took his concubine and sent her outside to them, and they raped her and abused her throughout the night. And at dawn, they let her go. At daybreak, the woman went back to the house where her master was staying, fell down at the door, and lay there until daylight. When her master got up in the morning and opened the door of the house and stepped out to continue on his way, there lay his concubine, fallen in the doorway of the house with her hands on the threshold. He said to her, get up, let's go. But there was no answer. Then the man put her on his donkey and set out for home. When he reached home, he took a knife and cut up his concubine limb by limb into 12 parts and sent them into all the areas of Israel. Everyone who saw it said, such a thing has never been seen or done, not since the day the Israelites came out of Egypt. Think about it. Consider it. Tell us what to do. See, I told you. I warned you. I want to share with you from these three chapters four thoughts. Four thoughts that I hope become a reflection, a mirror, an opportunity for us to examine our own lives. Because while we look at this and say, wow, that, that is is so far from reality, I think when we think about it a little bit more, we realize as we think about our our world and the culture around us and all that there is that's going on, maybe it didn't even shock us. Maybe this text really didn't even shock you. So how do we explain what's going on here? Keep in mind the big idea is that everyone has a king. And in the absence of choosing the right king, you settle for any king. So how do we explain what's going on here? How do we explain the absolute devaluation of human life? The particular devaluation of female human life? The... um, the, uh, entitlement attitude of human beings one to the other? How do we start to explain all of that? I, I think that for me as I looked at this and tried to analyze what's, what's really going on here in the hearts and minds of people, knowing full well that these people, the Israelites, and I think, let, let's, let's be honest here, let's, as we start here and think about this, this is happening among God's people. Okay, this isn't the people, this isn't the Canaanites. These are the people who named the name of Yahweh, Jehovah God. This is where we're going if we don't change our ways. 
If it can happen to God's people then, it could happen to God's people now. This is a wake-up call to all of us before it's too late as we continue to allow things to erode away, as we allow righteousness to erode away from our lives. This is where it goes. And I was thinking about the devaluation of human life and what could explain that and this whole, their whole concept of idolatry. And, and it seems to me this is true. When you bypass the king of creation and make creation king, human dignity and the image of God is marred beyond recognition. What was it that the Apostle Paul taught in Romans chapter 1? But those who forget about God, those who, who stop thanking God, those who refuse to glorify God and make images that they worship ultimately become depraved in their lifestyle. So wouldn't it follow that if the Israelites were embracing idolatry, images made by their hands, that they had started to worship creation instead of the creator? And when you do that, it is not long until human life loses its dignity and its value. It explains what's going on around us. When people are just creatures, rather than created in the image of Almighty God, when you view civilization, human civilization, as survival of the fittest, as the explanation for how we got to where we are, you no longer value human life. Its dignity is stripped away, it is devalued. And the weak and the vulnerable are particularly at risk. When you do not value or do not understand that both male and female are made in the image of Almighty God, you will devalue one or the other gender. This is what's happening here. And when you add to that, when you add to this worldview the, the cultural gods of sexual excess, you get this and you get an explanation for our culture. Think about it. They had embraced fully the Baals and the Ashtoreths. They had made images so they no longer valued human beings made in the image of God. When you put this mixture together of sexual excess, when sexual excess becomes a God, which it did then and is now, I would submit, when sexual excess is a God, you worship that, then all the people around you suddenly simply become implements of your worship. Once you become a worshiper of your sexual passions and sex has been elevated to the status of a cultural God, you end up with a Bill Cosby and a Jan Gameshi. along with the absurdity in our culture of self-diagnosed gender confusion foisted upon the culture with all of its entitlements, with no boundaries or parameters, 
And, and when you add to that an, a, a, an elementary educational system that's being pressed upon our teachers and upon our parents and upon our students to make deviant sexual morality, immorality normal or normative, then you're going to get this kind of behavior. That's the result. I mean, we're trying to ask questions this morning of how in the world did they get here? How in the world did we get to where we are? A Levite who is supposedly to hold out the standard of Almighty God mistreats his concubine, treat, has this, um, has this uh, sex object, his own personal sex object. And by the way, although NIV is translated in verse 2 that she was unfaithful to him, I doubt that. In fact, the, the translation of that word can mean she was angry with him. He had mistreated her. If she had been unfaithful to him, he would have had her executed right on the spot. The only reason she was still alive is because she was just angry with him. She took off and went home. And he went to try and talk her into coming back because he liked his sex object. She, she wasn't unfaithful to him. He was unfaithful to her. And then you have a town that, that believes it's entitled to treat people as objects of their own sexual gratification. And then you have a father who trades his virgin daughter to be raped all night because his female daughter is worth less to him than his male guest. And on top of that, you have this man of God who trades his own female sex object ultimately to save his own life. Shocking enough? Shocking, of course. This is what happens when creature is king. People lose their freedom to be moral. People in our culture can't be moral. They've lost their freedom to be moral. This is why, and you know this of me, this is why I'm a passionate creationist. In fact, I believe it's a mountain to die on. I'll die on that mountain if I have to. Because when you lose your moorings on Almighty God as creator... people will become devalued every single time. We have, we have a culture of, 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 uh, of death that we live in because people are devalued. Now, we all know that the demons are already out of Pandora's box. And... Uh, the perverts at the high levels are pretending to be shocked and outraged. Every time the news plays out with the next person who's abused a bunch of people sexually, those at highest levels of our culture are shocked and outraged. 
when in fact, in the decision-making places at these highest levels, they are fostering the cultural values that cause these things to happen. And that's exactly what happened in Israel. They were outraged. Imagine this. Nothing like this has ever happened in Israel since the time we escaped from Egypt. Tell us what to do. What are we to do? Oh, they're renting their clothes. How did this ever happen? One thing I've, I've observed the world over, and so have you, I'm sure, is the hypocrisy of retribution. When people decide that they're going to take this, they're going to settle for this, they're not going to settle for this anymore. We must, we must punish this horrible deed. From Ferguson, Missouri, to Bangkok, Thailand, to the country church in Hornpain, Ontario. Retribution is regularly meted out hypocritically. By the way, I don't know anything about Horn Pain or a little church in Horn Pain. So if anybody's listening online from Horn Pain, it just sounded like a, there is a place called Horn Pain, Ontario. Anybody been there? Wow. So I, could, I ran the risk of offending a lot of people. Somebody here might have been from Horn Pain, for all I know. Israel is livid that this would happen under their watch. And they decide in chapter 20, we are going to amass a great force of people and we're going to attack these Benjamites. How dare they practice such horrible things? And so the Levite, the man of God, waltzes in and he tells them a story. They, they, they summon him. Tell, tell us what happened to you. And, and in chapter 20, verses 4 and 5, he tells the story. Uh, listen to his story. So the Levite, the husband of the murdered woman, said, I and my concubine came to Gibeah in Benjamin to spend the night. So far, true. During the night, the men of Gibeah came after me and surrounded the house, intending to kill me. They raped my concubine, and she died. Does that sound like this story to you? Sounds like he was a gallant warrior watching over his concubine, and uh, suddenly the town pounced on him. And uh, they took his concubine from him and raped her because they, and they were going to kill him, but somehow he escaped and they killed her. So Israel, hearing part of the story and an exaggerated story, get all up in arms and decide they're going to take on Benjamin. Now, Benjamin, on the mean, in the meantime, so they, so they head out, and um, they, verse 12, they, the tribes of Israel sent men throughout the tribe of Benjamin, saying, what about this awful crime that was committed among you? Now surrender those wicked men of Gibeah, so that we may put them to death and purge the evil from Israel. Okay, makes sense. But the Benjamites would not listen to their fellow Israelites. From their towns they came together at Gibeah to fight against the Israelites. So here we have 
Israel now against the tribe of Benjamin. We have the, 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 the perfect storm of an internal fight. One group has not listened or has not been told the whole story, which is regularly the case in any dispute. And the other side of the group is not willing to hear anything bad told to them about their family, which regularly happens in any dispute. And so this establishes the cause of a major conflict. And I would suggest to you that in observation of this situation, we'll make a few comments. When sin is overlooked because, of tribal, because tribal loyalties have become king, the idolatry of those loyalties will cause great disunity. So what is it we have happening here? This Levite suddenly becomes morally outraged at rape when in fact he's been raping this woman for who knows how long as his sexual object. And we have the Israelites aghast at this horrible thing that's happened in their, under their watch in Benjamin. On the other side, so they amass this, this hor- hor- horrendous army that goes out. On the other side, we have the Benjamites who, who needed to remove the tribal lens, the family blinders long enough to seriously deal with internal sin, the internal sinful minority. I feel my heart goes out to, to the, the teachers who teach in our, our school system in these days who have to deal with the foolishness of blindly loyal parents. When I was a kid, and you know this too, you who are in my generation, if you got in trouble at school, you got a serious whipping at home. Is that not true? I mean, if you were messing around with the teacher, if you were being obnoxious to the teacher, being disrespectful for the teacher at school, they were like, you got what you deserved. Today, it's like I'm going in and telling the teacher, don't you dare discipline my child. What kind of a culture are we thinking we are raising The Benjamites practiced this very thing. They were so blinded by tribal loyalty that they couldn't see the responsibility to take some of their minority and say, hey, this is wrong, and you have to pay for your sins. What I think shocking to us is that Israel was more willing to execute outrage on each other than they were willing to clear out the pagan Canaanites from the land. I mean, God had clearly told them that they were to rid the land of wickedness. And then they listened that this Levite, who is not a good man, and nobody thinks he's a good man, he's not a good man. This Levite, who's not a good man, they they rise up to his words from this self-interested, egregious Levite who falsifies his testimony, but they have minimal interest in paying attention to God's word. There's something completely wacky about what's going on in this particular situation. And these are the results that you will get. Generally, truth is not what interests people. It's personal feelings and agenda. And this, this disunity leads to massive casualties. If my math is right, and I'm not sure it is, but if my math is right, 
There was a boat in the approximately 90,000 valiant warriors, they're called, valiant warriors or swordsmen, who were killed in this internal family squabble. 90,000 valiant soldiers who they needed to carry forth the actual will of God, which was to rid the land of Canaanites. Whenever we fight internally, we weaken our opportunities to take on the real enemy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so this continues on, and uh, there's an interesting statement in this verse 13. Now surrender those wicked men of Gibeah so that we may put them to death and purge the evil from Israel. Yeah, that's the quest there. I'm going to purge the evil from Israel. Listen, it required something so horrible. It required a man to cut up and dismember his concubine and FedEx her all over Israel for them to finally become outraged. They had to, to this point ignored their idolatry and sinfulness and, and, and uh, unwillingness to, to listen to God, their disobedience to God's word. They had to this point been unwilling to pay any attention to it. But suddenly, Israel's holier than thou. They're all up in arms and we're going to purge all the evil out of Israel. So they gather at Mizpah. It says they assemble before the Lord, not to seek him out, by the way, but just to simply apprise him of what they were up to. Listen, when the comforts of the culture are king, they, they didn't want to rid all the evil out of Israel. They were really excited about the idolatrous practices that they were comfortable with. But when the comforts of culture are king, we become selective in purging certain evil from our lives. They just called on God to be a superstitious good luck charm, a spectator. Yes, they were judicial, they were legal, they were technical, but they weren't spiritual. I'm going to show you in a few seconds why I believe that. This whole campaign was from the start, fleshly and a personal agenda. It was the culmination of a life pattern of sinful, fleshly choices with a cosmetic veneer of the spiritual. The bottom line is, and this is true of us, it was true of them, we get very good at seeing the sins of others, but we become very farsighted with respect to our own sins. We can't seem to help ourselves but be more outraged at the sins that don't happen to be our own. I'm going to show you, for example, from a text, it may be so of you, it may not be. I'm going to read a list of sins that the Apostle Paul told the Corinthians about in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 11. And I'm pretty confident that as you hear this list of sins, some of the sins will sound horrible to you and some of them won't sound as bad to you. And the reason is because the horrible ones are the ones you're not committing. The ones that don't sound so bad might be ones you've crossed the line with. And we get good at this. We're outraged at the sin of someone else because it doesn't happen to be our sin. But we certainly embrace our own. So 1 Corinthians 5 verse 11, but now I'm writing you that you must not associate with anyone who calls himself a brother, but is sexually immoral or greedy, an idolater or a slanderer, a drunkard or a swindler. With such a man do not even eat. 
So your radar went up, your sin radar went up very quickly, and you were looking at this list and saying, oh, yeah, sexually immoral, that's really bad. Greedy, ah, yeah. Idolater, yeah, who would bow down to idols? A slanderer, oh, saying something bad about someone behind their back. Hmm. Well, you know, there's a place for that. A drunkard, yeah, bad. A swindler, hmm. Yeah, yeah, I think that's bad too. And so we get really good at getting outraged at the sin of someone else. And the call to arms is great. And I can tell you something that God wasn't in this at all. You say, wait a second, if you read that chapter 20, God, they're having a conversation with God. Yeah, let's look at that conversation for a moment. The Israelites went up to Bethel and inquired of God. Finally, they inquired of God. They'd already decided they were going to slaughter the Benjamites. They already had all their swords. They already had their army. They were basically had already told God, this is what we're going to do. And oh, by the way, um, since this is what we're going to do, maybe we'll, we'll, we'll include God. Yeah, that's it. We better, we better bring God into this. Wow, we almost forgot. So they said, um, oh, I know. We'll give God a little decision to make. Who should go first? And so God says, Judah should go first. And we're the audience reading, oh, God is giving his approval. No, no, no. Not at all. This is God at his sarcastic best. Trust me on this. Do you remember when uh, God gave them the orders to take over the land of Canaan in Judges chapter 1? In the days when they were following along the will of God and they were, they were do, leading by according to his direction. And he directed them and he said, Judah should go first. You know what he's saying to them? He's reminding them of his word. You aren't asking me what to do. You haven't been paying attention to me since the first chapter of Judges. I told you what to do. Judah was to go first and you were to clear the land of all this mess. We would have never been here and having this conversation and you about to go and shed all of this blood if you had have just listened to me back then. This wasn't an instruction on who should go first. This was an, a, a, a braiding of God saying, you missed it the first time. And the reason we can know this is because they went to battle. You can read it. They went to battle and they got slaughtered by the Benjamites. Thousands of them got slaughtered. You're thinking, wait a second, God told them to do this. They did what God told them. They got slaughtered. What's the deal there? God wasn't telling them to go and slaughter anybody. They didn't ask if you want us to go slaughter. And they just said, who goes first to the slaughter? Oh, send Judah. Let them get slaughtered. Because they didn't do their job in the first place. So now you'll notice, if you keep reading, you'll notice, now they're like, oh, we got slaughtered. Maybe we better ask God a different way. So they go back and they ask God in, in uh, verse 23, shall we go up again to battle against the Benjamites, our brothers? So they come a little bit further. Shall we go, Lord? And God's basically, yeah, go. Have at it. That's not, that's not what you want to hear God say. You, you don't want that. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, go for it. See how it works out for you. 
See how not abiding by my word works out for you. So they go out and they get slaughtered again. So now they decide, we better have a prayer meeting. We better get serious with God. They get all gooey and spiritual now. Notice what they do. Here, look at verse 26. The Israelites, all the people went up to Bethel, the house of the Lord, where they sat weeping before the Lord. They fasted that day until evening and presented burnt offerings and fellowship offerings to the Lord. And they even went and asked the pastor what they should do. See, they said Phineas. They went to Phineas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, ministering before it. And they asked, here's what they asked this time. Shall we go up again with Benjamin, our brother, or not? Now God's talking to them. Go, for tomorrow I will give them into your hands. Benjamin was under the judgment of God as well. They were both under God's judgment. And then in verse 35, they win the battle, and the Lord, it says, the Lord defeated Benjamin before Israel. They kept trying to beat Benjamin themselves. And when God finally decided, yes, this is the judicial work of God, go. Now I have one more comment to make. And I'll summarize it this, verse 20, chapter 24. In verse 3, their response is this. O Lord, the God of Israel, they cried, why has this happened to Israel? Why, God? Oh, the God of Israel, have you let this happen to Israel? You're the God of Israel. Why is this these bad things happening to us. How often do we get ourselves in a jam of consequences because we didn't listen to God and then we turn around and say, why is God letting this happen to me? Why is my life such a mess? Why, if God is my God, why is he not looking after me better than this? Here's the deal. They let that, they, they, they chirp that, and then they say, hey, man, we've, we've, made a, we've made a tremendous mistake here. We have almost caused Benjamin to be extinct. There's only 600 Benjamite men left. And so they decide, wow, far from us to give our daughters in marriage to these scoundrels. So they make a vow and a curse we're not going to give our daughters to Benjamin, but they're, they're going to go extinct as a tribe. Hmm. There wasn't a whole lot of smarts in Israel at this moment. In fact, when you're sinning, you become very stupid. That's, that's one of the classic signs of sinfulness is stupidity. But anyway, they're, they're thinking, what can we do? Oh, I know what we can do. There was this group of guys, who, this tribe who didn't join the fight. I know what we'll do. We'll go up there. There's 600 Benjamites. There's no women left for them. We can't give them our women. So let's see, uh, we got to get them some women. Okay, we'll go and we'll slaughter a whole town of people. We'll kill all the men, and we'll kill all the women, and we'll kill all the children, but we'll keep all the female virgins. That's what we'll do. And we'll bring these virgins. So, so they, they did that. They go and they slaughter all these people. And, and then they, they gather up, and the, and the math comes out to 400. They've gathered 400 virgins, and they're like, 400 virgins? Uh, let's see. Got 600 men, 
got 400 virgins. Uh, it'll come to me, it'll come to me. Some of this, I learned this in school. This is this little math thing going here. Let's see, how, what do we need now? We need, oh, we, need, we need another 200 women. And so they come up with this plan that they'll go to Shiloh when there's a, a celebration and they'll tell the Benjamites, you can go while the girls are dancing and you can go steal. This is why Baptists can't dance. It came right from here. Because when, when Baptists go dancing, bad things happen. But it, it came right from this text. At least my mother told me that anyway. This is why you can't dance. You can't dance because you might. So anyway, so, um, so they go to this dance and they steal 200 girls. They say, yeah, wait a second. That's, that's a great plan. You know, but, but the fathers, they're not going to let us steal their daughters. Oh, yes, they will. Don't worry. We'll talk to the fathers. And so they go to all the fathers and they say, now, by the way, guys, we're going to steal all your daughters when they go dancing, and they're going to go and they're going to be part of uh, the Benjamite tribe. But you can't do anything about it because we've already made an oath before God. We've put a curse on it. And if you let on that you know anything about it, it will be tacit to you giving permission for your daughter to go and be married to a Benjamite, which means you're now under the curse. So you have to pretend that you don't know anything about it. And then you'll be free from the curse. Talk about a mess. And so they do. They steal the girls. When promised protocol becomes king, we can become blind to the fact that we're killing the patient. What a mess. By the way, this is a setup for future generations to think about Saul, King Saul was a Benjamite. Guess who else was a Benjamite? He wrote three quarters of the New Testament. The Apostle Paul was a Benjamite. The grace of God is unbelievable. But I want to I close with this thought for you. Two women, one woman was killed Two women were raped. That's how this all started. And so man's solution, man's plan is, let's go and kill thousands of girls to avenge the killing of one. And let's go and have 600 girls raped to avenge the rape of two. When the tribes fought, they killed thousands of women. This was their idea of justice. This was their idea of a good plan. And when they gave those, all those women to the Benjamite men, this was not marriage. This was rape in mass scale. Everyone has a king. In the absence of choosing the right king, you settle for any king. And little kings will take your freedom every single time. Father, we are sorry for the way we have treated you and the way we have lived our lives. The consequences that have come because of our disobedience are deserved. Oh, Father, I pray today that you will rescue our hearts through this series that you will make us more and more alert to the many ways that we have failed you. 
and that we will be people whose hearts will turn to a new passion for obeying the King of Kings. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We become used to stories ending happily ever after, and this one did not. But it's not the end of the story. It ends this way on purpose. It ends this way because it's true. It's because it's the way it was. It was a powerful message to the people of that day and, and the people for every day from there that man is not a deliverer. Man is not a faithful judge. Mankind is not a savior. Mankind does not lead well, are not great kings. Mankind desperately needed a king of kings and a savior of people and a just Lord and one who would deliver us to the fullest, one who would set the captives free. That's the rest of the story. That's the good news story. That's the story of this month as we celebrate in the coming Sundays of this month. That's the story we'll be telling. We'll be telling the story of a Jesus who alone can set us free. You see, we, uh, humanity is convinced that freedom comes from personal control. Nothing could be further from the truth. Personal control will always lead to slavery. There is only one who can bring freedom, and his name is Jesus Christ. He sets us free. The truth will set you free. And we must truly and honestly believe and embrace in our hearts that freedom only comes when Christ is King and Lord of our hearts. Then we know true freedom. That's the freedom that we preach and proclaim. And so as we complete this series to his honor and to his glory and to his praise, we have learned how horrible idolatry is, how bad it is when we have other gods before God, how bad it is when we make images that are replacements for our God, how bad it is when we rely on other things because we become dissatisfied with God. It takes our lives into a spiral freefall. But when we embrace Jesus Christ as Lord of glory, he lifts us up and sets us free and puts our feet on solid ground and mends our relationships and men and women treat each other with dignity and human life matters and the poor and the hurting matter and the little children and the yet unborn matter because Jesus Christ is Lord of glory, and he alone puts in our hearts the true value of humanity. And every single person on the face of this globe is made in the image of Almighty God. Our Father, dismiss us with your presence and your power and your grace that we might live our lives for you, I pray, in Jesus' name, amen.